Well, good evening. Those of you joining us online and all of you here, uh, welcome back to our study of the book of Nehemiah. This is kind of the high point of the book. I'm, I'm really excited about this. This is kind of the point of the book. It's not like the end of the series, but it's like the high point, you know, of the series. So let me say a prayer and we're gonna dive right in. Lord, we are so grateful for the opportunity to come fellowship with one another, to study your word, to contemplate it, and to put it into practice in our lives. Lord, I'm grateful that you give us teaching on all kinds of things, and particularly leadership, how we can be leaders in our various spheres of life, not necessarily important or rich or famous, but that we can have an effect on those around us, and we can do it in ways that you would want us to do it. And Lord, I do pray for all those in the sound of my voice for healing for those who are sick, and I pray for comfort for those who grieve pray for your peace for those who are anxious. I pray, Lord, that everyone who needs you would feel your presence, the presence of your spirit in their life. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here's our number for questions during class. It's on the handout. It's on the electronic handout. But we are studying the book of Nehemiah. This is a book that, you know, I've said to you, it's sort of like God's biography with leadership lessons. But what Nehemiah is doing on the surface looks like he's building a wall and it looks like a, a textbook on leadership and how to do an endeavor that looks like it shouldn't be able to be done. But it turns out that when the wall is finished that Nehemiah realizes God's been about a lot more than building a wall. God's actually had another program going and that's what we see once we get to this point. We've looked at several lessons. One is pray. Commit your endeavors to God. And that's not just in your spiritual, you actually don't have a spiritual life and a work life and a home life. Everything is your spiritual life. And all of your endeavors can be committed to God. Second, prepare. Expect God to do something. God is not our servant. We should expect God to say and do whatever it is we tell him to do, but expect God to move. God is, is busy in this world, and if we will line up our prayers and our desires with God's will in the world, it's amazing what can happen. Third is commit. You have to decide, what am I willing to give? And Nehemiah was willing to give his wealth, his career, and even his life for this task. Fourth, expect opposition. And then fifth, the toughest opposition will come from within. And so as from the time they began to build the wall until the time they finished the wall, there was incredible stress and opposition to all of the Jews and to Nehemiah in particular. And the stress and the opposition came from all of these countries around them. Remember, they're building the wall around the city of Jerusalem it's 444 BC, and the wall was destroyed 140 years before that, and it's just rubble. But we talked about the archeology span is really good for this time period, by the way. Tobiah is known in history, Geshem, the king of the Arabs, Sanballat, they're all known in history. The Ashdodites, and, and honestly, all the people around there were opposed to what was happening. Nevertheless, they persevered and they used a simple rubric, and that was pray and work. Pray and work. And so many of the phrases, you'll see Nehemiah constantly turning to God in prayer and constantly putting effort into what they're doing. And so in chapter six, verse 15, we read this. And so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, this is in the Hebrew calendar. It took 52 days amazing that it was finished at all. But they finished rebuilding the wall in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, took the wind out of their sails. For they perceived, and this is interesting, they realized this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Why? Well, first of all, you just shouldn't be able to do this this fast. I mean, you just shouldn't be able to organize your people, get them motivated. I mean, they've got to eat, they've got to work their fields, and they're building these walls. Secondly, the enemies knew they did everything they could to stop it. So when it happened, they realized this 
is not just the fact that Nehemiah is a good leader. He obviously is a good leader. This isn't just that the Jews have rallied together and have a common unity of purpose, although they certainly did, but their enemies realized that's not enough to accomplish this. And they realized that God had been in this and that's bad news for them. The way ancient peoples understood gods I would argue the way our culture understands gods as well, but that's another story for another time. The way they understood gods was the Ashdodites had their gods, the Arabs had their gods, the Samaritans had their gods, etc. And your god was powerful in your territory. And so they realized that when Jerusalem was destroyed, Yahweh, the God of these Jews, must not be that powerful. A God and so they discounted Yahweh they discounted those people and so they they just kind of ran roughshod over them but for them to rebuild the little temple and then to rebuild the walls around it to have a Jewish governor Nehemiah was declared the governor of that area by the king by the Persian king all of a sudden they realized their God actually might be powerful well that's a problem because they saw clashes between people as very much clashes between the gods of those people. So they were very depressed about that. The thing I wanted to point out to you here is really interesting when they write this, think about Nehemiah's point of view. He doesn't say the wall was finished in 52 days and that was above expectation. So I was rated exceeds expectation and I received a bonus that year at work. That's not what he says, is it? He didn't say, and the wall was finished in 52 days, and these people are awesome, I owe it all to you, the rest of you Israelites. No, he didn't. What he says was, they perceived that this had been accomplished by the help of our God. He gives the glory to God. It reminds me of a proverb, which I was reading uh, this morning, because my current practice, many of you probably do this too, uh, this year, I'm reading a chapter of Proverbs every day, and if you forget which chapter you're on, simple thing is read the chapter of the date. And so I read chapter 21 this morning. Here's the last verse in Proverbs 21. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. And that's Nehemiah's philosophy, really. And that is pray to God, and post a guard, pray to God and work. Prepare your horse for battle, but also realize God is the one that gives the victory. And that's what he's saying here, is God has made us victorious. So here's a picture just to remind you of what's happened. This is, by the way, a little segment that still remains of Nehemiah's wall. It's not intact. I mean, it's, obviously it's been 2,400 years since they rebuilt it, but that is a portion of Nehemiah's wall. And here's a picture uh, this is the Mount of Olives over here. I'll just draw a big mountain. So there's a valley through here. You see why I didn't go to art school. But this wall right around here, this is the wall that they built all around the old city of David down on, this is a hill that goes down right here. The Temple Mount, which isn't, wasn't anywhere near as glorious as it is today, but this literally is the top of a mountain. That is Mount Zion right there. That temple sat just right on the top of a mountain. And so they rebuilt the wall all around that area. So Nehemiah finishes the job, or so he thinks. He thinks, great, I asked God to bless this effort back when I was in Persia. He did, I came here, and oh my goodness, look what God has done. Look at the people, we've rebuilt the walls, we have a secure place to live, we can begin to rebuild our nation. We can have a homeland, if you will. But the Israelites were building a wall and all the time God was building the people. Israelites were building a wall, but God was building people. And the reason this is important, and now it's gonna become very clear as we go see the rest of the story, that Nehemiah thinks the job's done. And then all of a sudden he realizes God's been doing way more than building this wall. He wants to build, rebuild the people, wants to rebuild their faith, wants to rebuild their life. And that's still true today. God is working in your life and my life 
not just to answer the prayers we usually pray, you know, heal so-and-so, Lord bless this effort, hope this will go well, and, and, and that's not bad. That's an okay thing to do. But realizing that God is always building you before he's building your prosperity or your fortunes. And God was always been about building the Israelites, building their faith far more than he was about building their temple or their wall or their city or their nation or whatever. He's interested in every aspect of our lives. But when things happen to you and you wonder, why is God letting this happen? Why are these bad things happening? Or why aren't things going the way I'd like them to go? I've been a really good Christian. You'd think God would kind of smooth out my path in front of me. I want you to remember that God is far more interested in you than he is your circumstances. And that's exactly what's happening here. And so what happens after this? He said, well, they're about to have a celebration, actually. He's gonna list off, I'm skipping the rest of chapter six and a bunch of chapter seven because it's a bunch of names. So what are they actually doing? He said, the priests and the Levites, the gatekeepers and the singers. Now, the Levites are the tribe of Levi and their job is to attend to the temple. And so when they came back and they rebuilt a little temple there, they had to go say, who's of the tribe of Levi? Well, you need to come and you have to be the one that does the duty there. You have to be the ushers and the greeters and you, know, you have to perform all of the ceremonies there. The priests were the descendants of Aaron. Remember Moses' brother Aaron? And so they're Levites, but it's a smaller group. Levites are a whole tribe. Priests are defend, descendants of Aaron. And the priests do particularly special things. And so they had to go find who were the descendants of Aaron. And they were priests. So the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the singers, some of the people and all of Israel lived in their towns. In other words, they built the wall of Jerusalem, but needless to say, people weren't living there because it wasn't defensible. And when the seventh month of the Jewish year had come, the people of Israel were living in their towns. And all the people gathered into the square before the water gate. And this is the, the gate called the water gate. And so there was a big square in here. And so all the people came for a gathering inside the walls. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. There's another book in the Bible right by Nehemiah called Ezra. And Ezra was also an individual. And Ezra came also from Persia. And Ezra was a priest. And so Ezra came separately from Nehemiah and he began to try to teach the people about the law. Nehemiah came and he built the wall. And now that the wall is built, God said, oh, have I got a job for you guys. The wall was just part of rebuilding this people. And so that's what you see happening here. By the way, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah are one book. They just stick them together because this time period is all about the two of them. And so the people came into the square and Ezra the scribe brought the book of the law of Moses. What is that? That's the first five books of your Old Testament. It's the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so he brought the book of the law and the, uh, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. So kids young enough to understand. And on the first day of the seventh month, he read from this law of Moses facing the square from the water gate from early in the morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people listened to the book of the law. Now think about what's happened. They were able to do sacrifices and they were uh, able to follow the law of Moses until 586. Babylonians destroy the temple, knock down the walls, cart them all off to modern day Iraq. So from 586 until 444, so about 140 years, Jews are scattered everywhere. They don't have a temple, they don't have Bibles that they can read, and so they forgot 140 years is a long time. And so they know that they have a covenant with God, but they don't really know anything about it. And so they read the book of the law of Moses. And Ezra the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood several uh, other people. 
And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing up above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood up. You still stand, by the way, any of you uh, go to Anglican services or other uh, Catholic services, you stand when the reading of the word. So that was true 2,400 years ago as well. Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people and they all stood and Ezra blessed Yahweh, blessed the Lord, the great God and all the people said, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped Yahweh, worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yamin, Akuf, Shabbatai, Hoda, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is like the longest Sunday school class ever. And so what they did was, because there are thousands of people, they scatter all these Levites out amongst the crowd and Ezra would read a big portion and he would stop. And they would then just talk in the groups and, and explain what, what basically what is this. And then he would read some more. So they're not just reading the law as a, a you know, just as an act to do. They're trying to get the people to internalize the law. This is your covenant. You need to know what God is, uh, how God has blessed you and what you're doing for God. And so they read from the book clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood what was being read. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, the king had made him the governor of that area, and Ezra the priest, he was also a scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. And I have to pause there. I mean, think about it. We so take the word of God for granted sometimes. I'm not trying to sound as harsh as that probably sounded, but we so take it for granted. They hear the words of God and they weep. They weep to know we have not been doing this. So they reap out of repentance, but they also weep out of joy that, oh my goodness, the God of the universe has made a covenant with us. And I think sometimes about us is we do sometimes weep in repentance when we hear the word that we have not been faithful to God. And we weep with joy to know that, oh my goodness, look how much God loves me. And both of those are true at the same time. You can repent and be filled with the joy of God's love. And that's what was happening here. They were weeping. And so then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions. In other words, go have a feast for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. If you've ever wondered where that came from, because it's on like coffee cups everywhere at Mardell's. Okay, that's where it comes from. Why should you not grieve? Uh, repentance is good, but today is a day where God is restoring you. Be happy. Yes, you haven't been keeping his law, but it's a new day. It's a new beginning. And rejoice, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You're not gonna, you know how when you get depressed, you get down on yourself or you get down on your circumstances? It saps your strength, doesn't it? I mean, you're just like, oh, I've got so many troubles, I've got so many woes, God, I'm so unworthy. In so many ways, we can let the cares of this world just weigh us down. What this means is, yes, you still have the cares of the world. Yes, your child is still flunking social studies in school, but this is a new day, a new beginning with a God who loves you. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It will lift you up and make you strong enough Remember in Philippians where it said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me? What that means is, is that yes, life is difficult, but your God is with you and that will make you strong enough that you can face anything. I love this passage. Well, although you read it and you think, wonder what that means. That's what that means, is that the joy of knowing you start this day brand new with God is invigorating to us. And so I hope that you feel that way every day because you can and you should. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and share, to send portions to others means share with everybody else if they don't have enough. And to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. 
And so let me just pause there and say, what's God doing? Well, he built the wall. And sometimes God takes care of your material needs first. We as a church, by the way, that's your philosophy. I mean, we preach the word to people, but we also realize there are people who have serious health problems. There are people that don't have enough food. There are people that don't have jobs. That's why you, we, God's people in this place, by his grace, have free clinics. That's why we have a community center. That's why we give to the food bank. In other words, we do want to give people the greatest gift, the good news about Jesus Christ. But sometimes people, it's hard to see that when you're hungry. It's hard to see that uh, when you're struggling or when you're sick. And that's one of the reasons that God's people meet those needs. So we do the same thing. But I want you to realize this, as God is building his people, he meets some of their needs, but then he begins to nourish their soul. And one of the ways God did that then, and one of the ways God does that now, is God builds his people through the reading of his word. And that's why it's important for us, I mean, it's one of many reasons, but one simple reason, read your Bible every day. It doesn't take long, listen to it on version. Pick up your Bible and read it. Uh, get on your iPad or your phone and read a little bit every day, devotionally. You don't have to take away a big epiphany like, oh my goodness, that changed my life. No, that's not the way this works. It will change your life. And it's fine that it does it over time. There's power in the word of God. And the reading of the word of God is one of the ways the spirit works inside us. And that's exactly what they did 2,400 years ago. God said, Nehemiah, build a wall now I want you to start building my people. And I want to start with the reading of the word. Question? Do we know how long these people had been in exile before they came back to build the wall? Yes, we actually do know how long these people had been in exile. So a uh, short history lesson. So 586 BC, now remember we're counting down because we're on the other side of the timeline. So 586 BC, Babylonians destroy Jerusalem, and they've been carting people away. It's a little more complicated than this, but let's do the short version. They basically take the Jews and scatter them around in Iraq. And so there are not many Jews left in that land. And guess what? All the neighbors come in and say, oh, free, free uh, farmland, free houses, and they move in, right? And the, the people around them take their land, so they're gone. And so 586, the Babylonians uh, keep them there, 539 BC, okay, so 586 to 539, so 47 years. On 539, the Persians conquered the Babylonian Empire. That's actually the date that they rolled into Babylon, which is modern day Baghdad, if I didn't mention that to you. So they go rolling into Baghdad and say, oh, Babylonians, your empire is done. And so the Persians take over. Persians say, hey, we do not really care about relocating people. If you guys wanna go home, you're welcome to go home. Just pay your taxes or we'll come and kill you. But otherwise, we are so nice. And so, in 538, the very next year, a group of Jews come back led by a guy named Zerubbabel. I only tell you that is if you're reading through the Old Testament and you're through the Bible in a year plan, you're gonna meet Zerubbabel, that's why he matters. You're gonna meet him one other place. He shows up in the lineage of Jesus. But Zerubbabel brings a bunch of people back. From 538 all the way down to when Nehemiah shows up, 445, so this is a long time, right? Waves of Jews come back, a few thousand at a time. So there are people trickling back into the land uh, over time. And it's not easy. I mean, they come back and in about 515, they managed to build that little makeshift temple and start worshiping. But they don't, have, they don't have houses in Jerusalem, they don't have a wall around Jerusalem, they're enemies around them, they're having a hard time farming. And it's not until Nehemiah comes in 445 that he literally restores their fortunes of the Jews. And that's because he was connected with the king. And so the Jews are coming in, in waves at that time. So during the time that they were in exile, however long it was for a particular group, did they have the Torah to read or were they able to practice their faith in any way or were they really in exile from that until the time 
of Nehemiah? Good question. There were some copies of the Bible. So for example, Ezra was a priest and a scribe. A scribe is somebody that copied the Bible. So that's what scribes were. By the way, in the New Testament, you remember Jesus interfaces with the scribes? They're people whose job was to copy the New Testament. It took about a year to, to make a Bible, right, by hand. And they were teachers of the law. Why? Because they've been writing the law down. Uh, you know, and so they knew something about the law. They're not like real brilliant, but they at least know the law because they, they've spent their whole career writing down the Bible. And so they did have a few copies. It wasn't against the law to be a Jew, but you can't sacrifice. Really hard to keep kosher when you're living in another country like that. And you didn't have anywhere to gather. You see what I'm saying? And so people did drift away and were not observant. Many, many of the Jews were not observant. Good question. When they built the wall, had they already built houses or did they do that later? And if so, what did they build them from? Good question. So, so there were a few people living in Jerusalem in some houses that you can tell from the text, but there were not a lot of people. And I'll tell you why. You're going to see in the text in just a second, there weren't very many people living in Jerusalem. So they built their houses back out of rubble. Because when they tore down Jerusalem, I mean, these are stones, right? So they burned anything that was wood. Usually the uh, houses were made of stone and the uh, top was made of wood. Because let's face it, you don't want to be sleeping in your sleep number bed and stones fall in one night. So they usually made wood on the top. And so they'd set the city on fire and they burn everything up, right? That's why when you see ruins today, you see the walls and the doors and all, but no roofs, right? That's because they didn't have good insurance. And so you get hail damage, you can't put the roof back. But in all seriousness, what they did was then the engineers, the Babylonians were like, hey, we're making an example of you guys. They brought in engineers and they literally hooked up their teams of oxen roped it up and literally pulled these big stones out of the wall. I mean, they worked hard to destroy the place. Does that make sense? Usually you didn't work that hard. You just burnt the place and left. They just tore it apart, but they left the rubble there. And so they would rebuild it out of rubble. They rebuilt the wall out of the stones of the wall that were just in big piles of rubble and they had to build them back. So a few people lived in houses in Jerusalem, but not very many. So they begin by the reading of the word. And on the second day, remember we're on the seventh month, first day, all come together and read. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together again to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. So they'd heard it read and had it explained. Well, the heads of the clans come back the next day and say, we're gonna follow the law. We really need to understand this. So we've got a lot of questions. Ezra, we're gonna study the law. And they found in the law written that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths or tabernacles during the feast of the seventh month. So they're reading this book and they go, wait a minute, one of the commandments in here is the feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles. And we're not allowed to live in our houses during that feast. There are really specific instructions. Hey, it's the seventh month. We're supposed to be doing this. And so they do. And so it says that they should proclaim it and publish it. Go out into the hills and bring in all these things and then you would, you would make booths for yourself. I'm gonna show you what a booth looks like. Each on his roof or in the courtyard of your house or just anywhere you could find, you built a temporary shelter and you would live in that shelter, not in your house. And so all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in them. Uh, and they had done this all the way from the time of Joshua. This is back in the book of Joshua. So this is uh, 14 uh, about a thousand years before that. And so day by day, and they kept the feast for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was an assembly according to the rule. So let me tell you what they were reading. They were reading out of the book of Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus chapter 23, it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses. Now remember this, this is what is being said when they finished the 40 years wandering in the desert. So they leave Egypt, book of Exodus, wander in the desert for 40 years, come to the promised land, 
in 1400 BC. So we're a thousand years later, a lot of history's happened, but they're reading the book of Leviticus and it says, I want you to remember that while you were in the desert for 40 years, you lived in booths or tabernacles or tents. Think of that as all the same word. And now you're gonna go into the promised land, you're gonna live in houses, but I don't want you to ever forget, I took care of you for 40 years. I gave you manna, your shoes didn't wear out, you lived in tents, don't you all forget where you came from, right? That's the way we would say it. And so they would, every year, they would go live in a tent for seven days and remember God's faithfulness to them. So that's what it says here. Speak to the people of Israel on the 15th day of the seventh month of the Jewish calendar is the Feast of Booths. And on the first day, you have a holy gathering. You won't do any ordinary work. And for seven days, you'll present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day, you'll have a holy assembly. And it's a solemn assembly. You shall do no ordinary work. It was a feast. It was, a, it was days off. It was paid time off, all right? And so what they would do in the desert, this is a modern Bedouin tent. And this is a lot like what they lived in in the desert. I mean, it probably the architecture hasn't changed all that much. Uh, this one's a little ramshackle, but they are made of wool. Those are wool things in the poles and they would pack it up and they'd move. 40 years, they lived in things, looked a lot like this. That's a booth, a tabernacle, a tent, a temporary dwelling. And so today, by the way, Jews, whether you're observant Jew or not, you'll still celebrate the feasts. So you don't have to be an Orthodox Jew to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And they don't live in it, they just build one and they have all their friends over to eat. I mean, it's, I'm not trying to be facetious, I'm just saying, if you're not a real observant Jew, you still wanna observe the traditions. And so they'll just have people over to eat in their temporary dwelling. And these are examples of temporary dwellings people do. And so it's more cultural to do it this way. This is what it looks like when you're serious. This is Orthodox Jews, and they actually live in those little things that they just made for the eight days. And so observant or Orthodox Jews will leave their house and they will live in there, eat in there, sleep in there for those seven days. And the point is to remember God's faithfulness. Well, they're reading the Bible and they realize, oh my goodness, we could start right now, right? We're supposed to be doing this. It's the second day of the seventh month. On the 15th day, we're supposed to be doing this. And so they do. And so uh, Leviticus continues, you shall dwell in tents, booths, temporary dwellings for seven days and all native Israelites will dwell in booths. So, you're, so that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in tents when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. It is a monument to God's faithfulness to them. It's a remembrance. Well, they haven't been doing it. And so now they say, look, we have a covenant with God. We're going to do what God said, which brings me to the second part. God builds his people through the reading of his word and God builds his people through the doing of his word. And I think that's really applicable to us as well. If you wanna know how do I build my faith, read the word of God and do what it says. For you, that's not the Feast of Booths. That's not our covenant with God. We have a new covenant. That's what New Testament means. We have a new covenant with God. It's a great covenant with God. You still have to obey God, but the beauty of it is, is you don't have 613 regulations you have to follow. You're saved by grace through faith because of what Jesus Christ did. And we then have a covenant. You know what our covenant is about? I know you're probably thinking that. Terry, what is our covenant? Uh, if we don't have 613 rules, what do we have? You know, some would argue it's easier. And some people say, wow, can it be that easy? Do I just believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, it is. But here's the interesting thing. Having a covenant with God means submitting ourselves to God. Here's the way Paul says it in the book of Romans chapter six. He said, do you not realize that when you were baptized into Christ, meaning when you committed your life to Christ, when you, I'm gonna use some synonyms here, when you were saved, when you were born again, when you committed your life to Christ, when you surrendered your life to Christ, all those are synonymous statements. Do you not realize that you were buried with Christ? 
to be raised as he was raised to walk in newness of life. You are a new person. He goes on to say, your old self is dead. It's been crucified with Christ and now you are a new creature. In Ephesians it said, and God gave you his Holy Spirit to begin to conform you to the very image of Jesus Christ. God is totally remaking you into a brand new creature, not just a better behaved person. You can be a heathen and be a well-behaved person. That's not Christianity. I mean, I'm all for people being well-behaved, but that's not Christianity. Christianity is being a brand new person by God recreating us. So you literally surrender your entire life to Jesus Christ. And so we obey Jesus Christ. We actually, here's the thing, you actually want to be Jesus Christ. You, being a follower of Christ means I wanna be like you in every way I can be like you. I wanna be generous like you. I wanna be truthful like you. I wanna be obedient like you. You want to be like Christ in every way. You don't get to pick one or two traits like, oh, I really like the miracles, I wanna do those. Or, you know, or I like the compassion, I wanna do that. No, it's the whole thing. You know, I wanna be devoted to the truth. I'm gonna be devoted to compassion. I'm gonna be about grace. I'm gonna be completely obedient to God, even if it costs me my life. That's Jesus, Philippians 2. He humbled himself and became obedient to God, even to the point of death on a cross. Okay, that's, if that's easy, then I'm, you're right, it's easy. Bottom line is we surrender to Christ. That's our covenant with God. That's as simple as it is. And so God builds his people through the, through the reading of his word and the doing of his word. And it's just that simple for us as well. Read the word of God and do it. And I'm not trying to be facetious and saying, oh, it's so simple. What I am trying to say though is, if, you know, you can kind of, there's so many complicated things. Oh, I need to work on this. Oh, I need to work on that. It really boils down to being as simple as read the New Testament and do it. And we're here to help each other along the road to do that. And the Holy Spirit, not us, not my effort, it's sort of like with the wall, God built that wall. Well, we worked on it, but God did it. Same's true for us, is we're gonna read the word of God, we're gonna do what it says, and the spirit of God inside us is going to actually enable us to be changed. Make sense? I mean, Christianity is really easy to explain. That might be harder to do, but it's really easy to explain. Okay, so that's what's happening. And the point I wanted to make out of this is that you think through this whole book, and I remember the first time I read this book, I thought, man, this guy's a really good manager. I gotta study this guy, because he got a lot done. And I read through it and I go, wow, this is so awesome. God's gonna restore his people. He's gonna build the wall. He's gonna make them into a great nation. Then I keep reading and I realize, oh my goodness. The wall was just a little piece of what God was doing. The wall isn't even the most important thing that God is doing. And then it hit me, you know, being a, a, you know, a B-plus student, I realized, oh my goodness, I'll bet he's doing the same thing with me. In other words, the things that I think are important in my life, that God is doing in my life, that's good, and it's important, I'll bet you that's not really the most important stuff he's doing in my life, and that's true. It's what he's doing inside to build our faith and trust in him. Everything else is going toward that purpose. When you have good times, they're there to help you trust God or live out his word in, in a better way. When you have hard times, they're there to help you trust God and live out his word in a better way. Why? And the reason is, First Peter says this in the New Testament. He said, your faith is more precious than gold and you are going to live forever. And so God making me smarter, whiter teeth, stronger, better runner, better golf player, whatever. Okay, those are good things. None of those things are gonna last forever. But my faithfulness to God is part of who I really am and really will be forever. And that's why God says, even if you have 60 or 70 or 80 years of, of some hard times, I am preparing you for an eternity of joy and so look on these things in that way. Make sense? That's the essence of the Christian life. It's no more complicated than that. Read the New Testament and do what it says. Well, it goes on just a little bit, and this is where I wanted to get back to the question about the people living there. He says, now the leaders of the people 
lived in Jerusalem. So you had a handful of people living in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in the other towns. This is really smart. First of all, you're living in the surrounding villages. I mean, you've already got your school system and your soccer league, and you've got your field where you're growing your crops. It's not like you can just move to Jerusalem. But what they did was they said, look, if we're gonna be a people again, we need to populate the city a little bit more. So let's draw lots. Anybody that wants to move can move there, but let's draw lots and one out of 10 will relocate and we'll get Jerusalem to be a thriving capital city again and we'll begin to rebuild this nation. And so they did. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And so it's really interesting. Think about what's happened. They build a wall. That's kind of self-centered. I mean, to some extent. I mean, they know God's in it and they know it's a good thing. God wants to do it too. But realistically, that was like, hey, we need a town that's defensible, right? We, we need to protect our family. So there's a little bit of self self-centeredness in that, and that's good, that's okay. But then after that, they read the book of the law. After they build it and they go, oh my gosh, God has blessed us in this, God is with us. And then they read the book of the law and say, oh my, we have a covenant with God Almighty and look what he's just blessed us. We need to be obedient to him. We need to repent and come back to the joy of the Lord. And then they read it and they say, oh, hey, did you guys realize that in 13 days we all gotta be living in a tent? Oh, let's do it. We said we'd be obedient, we're gonna be obedient, and they begin to obey. And then, all of a sudden, they start doing things that aren't self-centered. Picking up and relocating is the opposite of self-centered. That's actually a self-sacrifice to give up your life and your fields and your job in Tekoa, a village, you know, so many miles away and move to Jerusalem and start over with your family. They've moved, think about what's happening here. They moved from being pretty secular people acting in self-interest with God's blessing to being people that have rediscovered their relationship with God and have now begun to do things that are not self-centered. In fact, they're self-sacrificing because of their relationship with God. Does this sound a lot like you're coming to Christ? It sounds a lot like when you watch people spiritually mature. They come to Christ, and honestly, sometimes they do it for self-centered reasons. And I understand that. If you come to Christ, you go, my life is a mess, I need you to make my life better. Okay, that's good, but look, nobody's gonna call that self-sacrificing, right? It's like, I want something from you, God, and God says, I hear you. got a lot of prodigal children out there, and I love you, and come on in, right? And so you start out because I so need something from God. Then you begin to realize God loves me and you know what, I love God. And you know what, the creator of the universe who's cleaning up my life wants to be in a relationship, covenant, forever relationship with me. And then all of a sudden you begin to change and you begin to do things that are self-sacrificing because that's what your savior did and you begin to realize it's not about me, and you begin to change. And that's exactly what you saw happen in a few short chapters. It took a little longer than that for them, but you, what you see God doing, he starts by building a wall and he ends up with people who are self-sacrificial followers of God. And the same thing happens with us. And I would simply say, let's be patient with people. As long as they are following Christ, Let's be careful about judging where they are on the road because you know where this leads. If you will follow Christ, if you will read the word and you will do the word, if you will gather with God's people, if you will be a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit is going to mature you and it won't be long before you find yourself self-sacrificing because of love for Christ. So I love this little story and one of the reasons I love it is it's so modern. It's 2,400 year old story, but you realize all of a sudden, all this has been going on and you say, oh God, I never saw that plan that you had going. And if any of you have ever looked back on your own life, you probably say the exact same thing. God, I never saw what you were doing there and I'm so glad that you did. This is a very modern story of what God is doing in these people. But I would be remiss if, uh, I didn't follow through on this. So at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, so I want you to know they also celebrated. Good leaders 
not only organize people, pray, commit their endeavors to God, but here's something we forget to do in our companies and in our families, is when God answers a prayer and when you've achieved a milestone, take time to celebrate that. That's what all those feasts of the Jews were for, is to celebrate what God had done. And so they had a dedication at the wall of Jerusalem. And notice what Nehemiah does. Now that he's realized God is rebuilding this people, not just physically, he's rebuilding them spiritually. Uh, they sought the Levites and brought them to Jerusalem and they celebrated with gladness, thanksgiving and singing with cymbals and harps and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people in the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. They just had a huge dedication ceremony that was completely pointed at God for what he had done. But in doing so, you notice subtly what he's doing here. He's figured out who are the Levites. You guys now, part of the covenant is you take care of the temple. He's figured out who are the priests. You are the spiritual leaders of the people. You are the shepherds. You're here to spiritually guide these people. He's found the singers, which is a group of people. Uh, they were official worship leaders. So they got, found all the worship leaders, appointed them, because every time they come to the temple, they're gonna go through this worship. He's building the infrastructure for their religion. So he built the wall, the infrastructure of the city. Now what he's doing is finding all the right people that God had appointed so long ago and putting them into place so they can now practice their religion. Does that make sense? He's building the infrastructure of the religion as well. So when Nehemiah, somewhere in this point, Nehemiah catches on to what God is doing and he says, okay, the wall was just the beginning. Now we need to build a people. And if you think about it, when he's finished, you have a defensible city that's reasonably well populated to be the capital fortified city of the Jewish people. He has made sure that they are economically sound because of his ties to the king. And now they can protect themselves against their enemies so they don't have to pay their enemies taxes of all their produce. They get to keep it themselves. So they're economically better off they're spiritually sound. He's rekindled the covenant with God and the people are once again, the people of God dedicated to God. He, you, what you have now is you have a Jewish nation, not just physically a nation, but spiritually a nation. And so from the exile in 586 until he finishes around 400, some time has passed here. Around 400, you get the destruction of the Jewish people because of their unfaithfulness. And when Nehemiah is done, you have God has rebuilt the Jewish nation and given them another chance to be faithful. And that's what's happened. And Nehemiah himself, bless his little heart, says, thus I cleansed everything foreign and unclean, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. In other words, he said, I did what God wanted, and I set up the infrastructure for the religion. He says, remember me, O God, for my good. And so this is, this, this is Nehemiah's uh, uh, human side coming out. Several times in this book, you've heard him say, remember what these people did to me, God. I expect you to pay them back. And now he just says, remember what I did. In other words, I served you, I was faithful to you, remember me, God. This was not an easy thing that he did. And that's the end of the book. That's the last line of the book of Nehemiah. It's, remember me, O God, for good. And I just think it's a beautiful thing. In fact, if you wanna pray that prayer, pray that prayer. There's so many lines in Nehemiah that, that ought to be incorporated into our prayers. Remember me, O God, for good. And so the takeaway lesson uh, from this part of it, you learn a lot of leadership lessons, and this is as true today as it was then. God is always working a larger plan than you see. This is so tied into the idea of the sovereignty of God, which is a uniquely Christian idea, is that God is sovereign. What does it mean to be sovereign? It means that God is not helpless, 
The things that are happening in this world are not beyond his ability to remedy. That's what the New Testament is about. Jesus came to set things right. And God will bring justice to the world. And God is using us, his people, to restore the world and to bring it back to rights and to restore the people in the world. And so whatever is happening to you and me, I, I really think it's comforting to step back and say, you know what? I'm not alone. God knows what's happening here. And the fact that God is allowing this to happen means that God has something good going on. Remember Romans 8, 28, for all things work together for good, for those that love God. Not all things work together for comfort. Let's not put words in God's mouth, but all things work together for good. And that is true. And just remember, God is always working a larger plan than you see, particularly when you come up against forces that look so powerful and you feel so weak. That is starting to happen in America. It's happened throughout all of history. And I'm afraid that my prediction is it's going to get worse. And you're gonna come up against forces that appeal, that seem so unjust and seem so powerful. And you think, God, how, you know, this is so wrong. Just remember, God is always working a larger plan than you see. And God is always going to make things right. So that's the book of Nehemiah. And I thought what we would do in the next couple of sessions, now that you've, you've kind of learned that story and seen it, what might be really helpful is we are actually at the end of the Old Testament chronologically. So Nehemiah finishes up and all of this is done. And where do we leave the Jewish people in 400 BC? We leave them with a city, with a wall, with a population, with the uh, renewed covenant with God, sacrificing in the temple, and they are back, I mean, from the dead, literally from the dead. I mean, they are back from exile, from the dead. And so for the next 400 years, there's no word from God. He restores the people and says, go, be faithful. And so what I thought we would do is let's look at the legacy of Nehemiah. And what I'd like to do in the next two lessons is what happened between the end, 400 BC, and the Jews are doing great, right? And God has restored them for the next 400 years until Jesus shows up. What happened then? It's called the intertestamental period, meaning the time period between when the Old Testament ends and the New Testament starts. So what we've left the Jews prosperous and doing well, what happens in the next 400 years? And why did God decide to bring Jesus at that time? And so the next two weeks, what I'd like to do is go through the history of that time period. And remember, history is happening, but God is doing something in the people in the midst of that history to get them ready for Jesus Christ. So next two weeks, we'll talk about the dark period that's not really written about in your Bible, the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you want to, you can think of it as secret knowledge and I'll tell it to you, but you have to swear not to tell anybody else, okay? <laughs> I'll see you guys next week.